Welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast, where we are accelerating the co-creation of the future of our democracy. My name is Duncan Autry, and I am a conflict transformation catalyst. I'm the creator of the OmniWin Project, and I'm your host. The goal of this project is to facilitate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture, so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. What that means is that if you're tired of our polarized and divisive political culture, or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations, well, then you're in the right place. I believe that the world is ready for change, and I know that we have answers to most of the problems that we're facing. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing them with you. I'm in this for the long haul, and I hope that you'll join me. So come on over to the OmniWinProject.com where you can get more information, media, resources, and inspiration. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the OmniWin Project podcast. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. The guest on today's show is Kenneth Cloak. Ken is a great friend, and he is one of the primary inspirations for the creation of the OmniWin Project. I'm going to start by pointing out that this is part two of my conversation with Ken. If you would like to have more context about what's going on in this episode, or if you'd like to hear a proper introduction of Ken, I encourage you to go check out part one. If you have already listened to part one, welcome. I am sure that you're eager to go ahead and get back to the conversation. Either way, welcome. And thank you for listening to the Omni Win Project podcast. So at the end of our last episode, Ken left us by pointing out that we're going to have to break out of our current democratic structures because they're looking for simple yes-no solutions. We need instead to find processes that allow us to sustainably engage with complex political issues. Okay, you know what? I'm going to back up the recording a little bit. I'm going to let Ken frame it up. To start us off is the question that Ken was offering at the end of part one. And with no further ado, here is Kenneth Cloak. A second piece is the idea of finality. Uh, The jury is supposed to come up with a final determination, but there isn't anything final in relationships. They're ongoing. And what we need isn't just a, a determination at one point in time that somebody is wrong and the other one is right. What we need is to figure out How do we live together in a way that acknowledges both what is right and what isn't for all of us and allows that to evolve over time? And it's identical with nation states. So the kinds of choices that we have uh, are presented to us as voting in favor of this legislation or voting against it voting in favor of this candidate or voting against that candidate. But what we need is an opportunity to talk about the issues with one another, brainstorm solutions, have those be considered by other groups of people, look for sources of synergy, uh, try stuff out, use pilot programs, uh, projects, etc., and see that the problems that we are facing are not susceptible to a single intervention that all of a sudden finally decides, here's what it is. It's a little bit like the climate change process. Climate change is a moving target, just as every relationship is, just as every major significant ongoing problem is, just as every chronic source of conflict is. And what we have to do then is we have to figure out how do we keep the conversation going? How do we deepen people's understanding of what is going on improve 
uh, or increase their skills, expand their capacity to make a difference, connect them with one another. So here's an example from science, really from mathematics, that has been demonstrated in experiments in many situations. If I were to hold up a jar, let's say I hold up uh, this teacup, and let's say I were to fill it with jelly beans, and I were to ask how many jelly beans are there in that cup, what is the closest to correct answer on average? And the answer is, it is the average of all of our ideas of how many jelly beans are in there. And that has been demonstrated repeatedly. Why? Because some people will go high, other people will go low. And somehow, by averaging them, we come up with a better answer. So there's something in the animal kingdom that's called swarm intelligence, which is how various species uh, learn and understand and evolve and how they know how to tackle problems in their environment. And we have, I think, among us as human beings, not only a facility with swarm intelligence, we have honed over millennia, really, as long as we have been a species, we have honed our capacity to collaborate. So part of what distinguishes us from other species is our ability to collaborate at a level that is informed by science and mathematics, uh, by what is real in the world, by our capacity to investigate and discover what is happening, and our ability to search for solutions that are not narrow and limited. Now, there are some problems that can only be solved with a single correct answer, but there are other ones, even mathematical ones, where they, we think there's a single correct answer. Like if I ask the question, what is the square root of 16? You will say four, but another correct answer is minus four. So anytime there is a square, that is, you, you have something that has an, a two as an exponent, uh, there are going to be uh, two possible correct answers. And if there's a three, there are three possible correct answers. Quartic equations, four correct answers. Quintic, five. So how many of the problems we face are like that? Many of them. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate your ability to go down to the math rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, and I'm going to sort of pull out of this this piece of your average jelly bean sort of prediction thing here. <laughs> yeah. um, and this is something that I think is a fundamental concept behind, I don't know, just the whole field of conflict transformation or just why we even think there should be dialogue and participatory democracy in the first place is that it's like the more perspectives we have on something, the, the more precise understanding of that thing we're going to have, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, we could literally just like, you know, if you're sitting across the table from someone, you're having two totally different experiences of what's behind the other person and what's on the table. Everyone's seen two different sides of the same thing. Have a conversation between the two of us, we can describe it better. But if we had a third or a fourth person, we can do more, right? And um, and it seems like mathematically, we can prove that if we're just guessing even, we're going to get really close to the correct answer if we get the collective average. And this seems like it totally would apply to almost any important public policy issue that we want to be considering in our highest common good problem-solving democracy, right? Like, the more perspectives that we have on it, the more um, precise of an answer we might have, right? And and get closer to what might be the, you know, 
the right or the most adequate or the, you know, the most optimal answer. And so challenge of our current system is that someone maybe with like a group or some politician or maybe with their colleagues or somehow they've put together an answer and then they present it as, do you like this or not like this? Right. And that's how we're mainly thinking about our democracy, up, down, vote on this thing that's already fixed. Um, so it seems to me that a place where some of these tools would be most useful would be upstream from that actual decision. Right. And to think about, so if I, um, am a politician or I have a constituency or the, and there's an issue they need to consider. So I know like in California, we have like fires or whatever the t topic might be gathering as many different perspectives on like what might happen and ha getting them into conversation with small groups and, and such <laughs> um, to have a conversation about an issue and really think about it ahead of time before making a decision about it huh. seems like that's the place to be really like, there's can be real space for that kind of thing. And yeah, so just um, there's something that about that idea of like developing like the, the response to an issue first and and really taking yeah. in those different um, perspectives and trusting that it's really the average of all of these. And there's also the p way that if people are participating in it, they also might have more buy-in and be willing to have it happen. So I wonder, like, do you have um, any examples or experience with, you know, I mean, like those different perspectives kind of like coming in with the other yes, no answers and then realizing that there's like a kind of a third path here or a fourth path or something that no yeah. one thought of before. Absolutely. Let me give a, a first an example uh, of doing that and then a, a kind of description of it. For those of you who have been to Santa Monica, where I live, uh, if you have been on Main Street or to the promenade, you have noticed there's a kind of aesthetic. Uh, it's governed by a set of, by a zoning ordinance. Uh, the zoning ordinance was created as a part of a collaborative conflict resolution process um, by myself and Joan Goldsmith, who uh, over a period of uh, six to eight months worked with homeowners, uh, renters, uh, business owners, uh, government officials, police, you know, a whole bunch of different constituencies uh, in a consensus building process. Uh, and it wasn't particularly easy because everybody had their own views of it. But we came to complete consensus about what should happen and then pre and planned what this whole city was going to look like over a period of months with room for multiple different diverse voices in that process. So here, I think we need to shift our way of thinking. And here is one way of doing that. If we think of how we combine things together, uh, there are two fundamental ways of doing this. One, uh, we take cold water and we add warm water and we get lukewarm water. That's compromise and that's not maximal. Second, we take water, we add flour, yeast, and heat, and now we create bread. If we do it in the right amounts at the right times, that's a much more complex process, but we have invented something brand new out of things that have nothing to do with each other. Because there's nothing about um, the heat that tells you that bread is going to result or yeast in advance or any of those things. So one piece of, of this is what we can think of 
as the creation of a recipe for success out of experience. And in doing that, we need to account for lots and lots of different kinds of experience. And if we leave any of those experiences out, our ability to create the recipe will be reduced, which doesn't mean that we add everything into the recipe. It means there has to be a winnowing. Who does the winnowing? And the answer is uh, the small groups in each of their small groups. And then representatives of those small groups come together and integrate what was created. And then it's fed back again. And you do that kind of accordion style in and out over a period of time. The problem is it takes time to do this. It's complex. It takes higher order skills. You've got to know how to bring people who disagree with each other into conversation. You've got to know how to uh, resolve the conflicts in ways that are constructive. You have to know how to not slip into adversarial assumptions, how to listen closely to what it is that people really mean, how to take the risks that are involved in discovering what they really mean, as opposed to just what they're saying. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not exactly. I think this is like it's not just about putting all the critters into the into the space and seeing what happens. There has to be people who have the skills to organize that conversation, be in that higher level conversation. Um, and it seems like we have the people with those skills. It just there's a lot of people with those skills. Um, Increasing numbers. Exactly. Um, so, Ken, I want to ask you one more question, and then we um, transition to seeing what other people who, are, who have stayed through this conversation might want to ask. When you're looking at looking forward to 2020 was a tra- challenging election year, um, and if we're just looking at that high level 2024, 2028 coming down the pike, what are the things that you're going to be looking for or paying attention to? to see if we're moving more towards an omni-win democracy or um, what are the criteria or the metrics that you can tell if we're getting better or not? Mm. Okay, very good question. Let me first uh, kind of look at the picture globally. Um, Right now, war is raging in Ukraine. We've got two nuclear powers, at least, who are squaring off against each other, really more than that. And uh, Richard Denton, who is on this call, uh, listening in, uh, is one of the individuals in Rotary who's attempting to bring the nuclear danger to the forefront of our uh, consciousness and and, uh, problem solving. Uh, We've got a a massive global problem with changing climate and environmental devastation. We have uh, the pandemic which is now fortunately receding, but it is one of possibly many. Um, And there is nothing in the way that we have responded to this um, that fits into the category that you have described of planning, preparation, prevention, you know, sort of the intelligent way of approaching these issues. Why? In part because the form of government is an obstacle to problem solving. The nation state is probably the single most powerful problem solving organization ever created, and it can no longer solve those kinds of problems, any of them. In fact, it is a part of the problem rather than a part of the solution. So what do we have to do? The answer is we have to make the form of our decision-making, the form of our government open to input uh, and invent 
ways for people to participate in conversations across polarized political lines that reinforce our oneness, not only as citizens of the U.S., but as a species on the planet. And this oneness can be created in small ways in mediated conversations. I do it every single mediation I do. I ask questions that draw people together, that identify who they are as human beings, um, that respect them, that acknowledge what's happened to them, uh, that listen to their interests and try to build those into solutions, etc. So there are many, many different ways of doing this that I think we as conflict resolvers have to offer. But we are really at a significant turning point in our ability to make this happen. The fact of January 6 and the insurrection that took place uh, is one we can't forget. And it is one that if we think about it and we read what happened, we realize that we came just about this close within millimeters of losing democracy entirely. And that can still happen again. Fortunately, it did not. Fortunately, we've learned a few things, but we haven't learned enough to actually prevent it from happening the next time around. In fact, many of the difficulties that we face have their origin, in my view, in an outdated paradigm of politics that then generates conflicts uh, and turns those conflicts in a political direction. So there is nothing about wearing a mask with regard to COVID that would tell you that that is a political issue. And yet it has become one. And so what was happening is we are making issues political because there are underlying interests that are political that are not being addressed. And those are coming out in other forms, just yeah. as in a marriage. If there's some underlying problem that isn't addressed, it's going to come out in other forms. So we have to have ways of acknowledging and addressing those and drawing people into conversations about uh, that really are about how we uh, interact with one another and what kind of democracy we want to have and how there's room for everybody to participate in that. How to do that is not an easy question. It's, it's not. Um, it's not an easy question or easy no. one to answer. And, you know, I actually made a little note here just today, one of the first people who, um, from the January 6th insurrection was convicted of um, a handful of different crimes. And, you know, it occurred to me that there's a way that that's, you know, justice, it's a rights-based system doing its work, and it's not, however, really quite enough. We're not necessarily addressing the deeper issue here, both the the threat and the threat to democracy that, that has that it all represents, but also the idea that there's a, that we just got to get these people who are angry about the system sort of out of the way is also not the answer either, because as far as I can tell, part of the reason why those people were riled up is because they thought, oh, hold on, we're not, no one's going to listen to us if we don't win this election. Because if we're on the losing end of this, then we're going to be excluded. And, and it's that back to that digital democracy. Yeah. When the digit is half of the population or 49% of the population, there's a challenge there, right? And it's like there's some legitimate concern about. Um, pushing people, you know, out of the system or telling them that they lost and, and so forth. And I, I think that, 
um, kind of what I hear is like your response of sort of like, what are you looking for, like watching as we go forward? Similar to what I see too, I find myself interested in see, trying to see politicians or yeah, anyone out there in the political sphere really talking about the importance of getting input across the political perspective to really inventing ways for participation across the different party lines and so forth, and to really lift up that value. I can feel that we're close to that. So that's one thing that I'm going to be watching for. Um, and I think maybe a future conversation um, might be an interesting one about how we talk to people who are campaigning or running for office or in office about them making the choice to say, I'm going to make some decisions based on what the actual people have to say. You know, I'm going to really listen to the whole perspective to, to have any individuals that are in the system be actually lifting up the importance of listening to everyone and not just trying to win on a certain policy issue. Um, curious where those entry points might be and it'd be kind of cool to explore um, future down the road on this project. Yeah, the uh, one of the pieces that is important here is uh, the role of polarization and all of learning, all of growth uh, from the very beginning is about polarization. So you have you know sort of uh, X chromosomes and Y chromosomes uh, that separate from one another, and that separation, that initial separation, allows you to create a brand new human being by combining those different chromosomes in different ways. And in a similar kind of way, polarization in conflict is an important step in making sure that your experience is heard. And it's legitimate for people to say, no, no, that isn't how I feel. And we should not take the position in conflict resolution that polarization is a negative, just like we don't take the position that conflict is negative. What it is, is it's a prompt to dialogue, to negotiation, to conversation, to listening, to empathy, uh, to storytelling, to brainstorming, uh, issue analysis. All of these various ways of responding to differences arise out of the difference themselves, differences themselves. And what we are really searching for is how do we create synergy? How do we make bread? And one of the ways that we are doing this is by seeing that there's a difference between the nation state on the one hand and civil society on the other. And many of the things that you are describing, Duncan, are things that are now taking place in civil society. There is a group like Better Angels that are organizing dialogues. There is living room conversations. Um, there are multiple organizations, Mediators Beyond Borders, that you mentioned earlier, democracy, politics, and conflict engagement. You know, all the, there are dozens of organizations that are out there trying to create some better understanding of uh, how we go back to Aristotle and search for the highest common good without excluding people from that process. So what's important is to not concede in the process of speaking to people that you disagree with, to not necessarily say, oh, okay, I accept that, I agree with you, because that misses the point also. What it, because what we discover in conflict resolution is that the deepest truth is not the one that is spoken. It's the one that has a very hard time 
uh, even speaking up at all. Um, the one that is suppressed, the one that's un unacknowledged, unspoken. That's the one we want to bring forward. Thank you. I, um, I'm really going with this, like when we see polarization and division, this is a prompt for dialogue. And also conceding or allowing just to say whatever goes, goes, um, undermines the whole process because we each need to have our voice in the process. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you, Ken. I really you. appreciate this and look forward to more conversations as this uh, project evolves. We have one question here from Richard about trying to find a, what would be a way of finding a peaceful solution to the situation in Ukraine, how to get people to the table and to negotiate a solution. And I'd give you permission to take the magic wand uh, effect. You know, if you could really just go ding, here's what it looks like. You know, um, what could it look like? Yeah. I'm reminded, thank you for your question, Richard. Uh, really excellent question and very timely and important. Uh, I'd like to kind of circle around the answer uh, for me, uh, because I think there are many answers and I'm not sure that I have the one that is probably going to be the most successful, but uh, here's what came to mind. Um, there was a wonderful statement from uh, Desmond Tutu, who died recently. Um, he said, of course, if people are drowning in the river, you want to swim out and try to save them. But sooner or later, you want to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And I think the important thing here to see is that this conflict has been taking place for decades, if, and certainly longer than a century. It dates back uh, um, to World War I uh, and before. And uh, the Russian Revolution and their whole series. We don't need to go into the history of it, but I think you can read up a lot about the history. Uh, but there have been multiple opportunities for conversation and problem solving and negotiation and realignment. And unfortunately, uh, all of those have failed. Here's the difficulty. I think that the Ukraine situation is what um, we have on occasion referred to in other situations as a proxy war. That is a war that is fought in some other country, but there's really uh, more people who are involved in it than just the principal parties. Uh, there's a fundamental realignment on a global scale uh, that is taking place and also uh, an awareness of the costs that are looming in terms of climate change, um, uh, the kind of insecurities uh, that have been created as a result of uh, a whole series of different uh, historical shifts that I feel are taking place. And so what we are gonna need is not just to stop the fighting, we're going to need to take a look at how we create a, a global, uh, a world order. Um, and we can see this also with the pandemic. I would say that if we were to rank how well we did in responding to it uh, as a species and to think about how many people died, I think we did very poorly. Uh, we could have done much, much better. But in order to do better, we require a huge realignment of all of the assumptions that and relationships that we have built as an international community over centuries. So now the question is, how do we actually bring them together? I think on some level, as strange as it sounds, uh, Naftali Bennett uh, of Israel has one of the best opportunities to actually make this happen. 
uh, because the presence of Israel and Russia simultaneously in a military capacity in Syria has led to the development of a relationship between those two powers um, that is non-threatening to Russia, and it is also Israel and Zelensky is Jewish. Uh, so there, I think, may be something that could come out of these conversations. The difficulty is, I think, in part, one also of scaling back the fundamental ideas that are fueling the expansion of NATO and the perception of hostility on the part of uh, Russia and China, um, uh, the uh, question of the role of the U.S. and of Europe in the world order. All of these are actively in motion as we're speaking. And we may solve the problem in Ukraine, but not solve any of these other issues. So I think that there is a, uh, right now there is a negotiation that is taking place primarily because the costs to both sides are enormous. But has been pointed out in at least one article that I've read, uh, this is a war that neither side can afford to lose. And therefore, what we are going to require is some kind of solution that acknowledges the legitimacy of the interests on both sides, the interest of Russia in not having a hostile nuclear power uh, uh, sort of uh, use Ukraine as a possible base for expansion. Um, I think that's on the table. And I think that Ukraine has now acknowledged the legitimacy of that interest. Um, but Russia is also demanding that Ukraine not join uh, the European Union, uh, that it surrender the Donbass and the Eastern Republics. And uh, these are issues that are going to be difficult to uh, resolve because they will end in a divided Ukraine, although Ukraine has been divided now for over eight years. And I, I think these are issues that are going to have to be addressed. There was a ten. Yes. Yeah. Just because there's other sure. question here. And part of what I hear, though, one is just that this importance of just paying attention to going upstream and that story that's told but from Desmond Tutu that mm -hmm. actually I'm still trying to find the origin of that story of like the idea of like going upstream is important. So part of the, the thing is, is how do we avoid these things from happening in the future, right? That's one. Another one is, I really appreciate you pointing out that like, what is the underlying assumption with NATO and, and like trying to protect from a Russian enemy and his entire yeah unity around that. And there's a great question here that I think is an interesting uh, follow-up from that and also maybe follow-up to a question I was going to ask about our Zoom bomb experience. But um, so how do we bring those that enjoy causing harm to show that they have power and, and show that they have the power to do so? How can we get them to be willing to see the other side's perspective? And then when there's opposing parties, is it okay to think that they're maybe stuck in their assumption in their positions because they're afraid to be wrong or afraid to be vulnerable. Um, so, you know, whether we're, you know, starting with the assumption that Russia and Putin are up to no good, or we see people coming into our call being like, I want to make it have attention and show that I have the ability to do that. Like, how do we bring those people into the conversation? Um, and I might try to, I mean, I'll might try to answer this question by saying like, 
well, these people probably need some care and some love, <laughs> right? They're probably really hurt and traumatized and having a hard time. And for sure, that's true for many people. That's also long, slow work, and it's not for everyone. Um, so I'm curious what any thoughts that you have about mm-hmm. how we actually bring people into the conversation that are really wanting to mess things up. <laughs> many years ago, I was invited to do some work um, on conflict resolution in Cuba. And I went several times and uh, on one of those occasions had a meeting with Fidel Castro. And he said, uh, you know, uh, people in the United States, you should build a statue to me and you should call it the last enemy because you need to have an enemy uh, because so much of your political system in the US revolves around having an enemy, an external enemy, internal enemies, you've got to have an enemy. And that conversation stuck with me because we create enemies in every conflict um, by both action and inaction. So if we go to Lizavet's question, uh, which is a really excellent question, and we ask the question, um, why is it that there are people who enjoy causing harm to others? Where exactly does this come from? One of the answers, and it's not a complete answer, but one of the answers is um, the desire to communicate what it feels like to have had harm done to you. And if that's the case, then we have to ask that question. Uh, we have to inquire into uh, when is the first time, um, well, or if someone uh, yells at someone, you can ask the question, um, uh, why did you yell? Uh, have you ever been yelled at? What did it feel like? When was the first time you were yelled at? Um, how did that impact you? What have you done to try to prevent other people from yelling at you? Has that worked? Right? All of those questions. What we discover is that by asking those kinds of questions, we help people get beneath the surface of the defense that they have created to protect a traumatized self. Um, This is somebody who has a wound, a trauma of some kind. And one of the things that Mediators Beyond Borders has been working on is the development of something we call trauma-informed mediation. So part of what we want to do is to show that you can get what you want without exercising power over and against others. It is possible for that to happen. Tell me what you want, and let's see if we can do it. Let's see if we can break it down. And you mentioned before about breaking large issues down into small ones. That's important, but that's a reductionist project. And there is also a holistic project, which is helping people see the big picture, not breaking it down, but actually taking it and making it larger. So Mm -hmm. that's about being willing to see the other side's perspective. But the reason people can't hear each other's perspective and as I discover as a mediator, is because nobody's listened to theirs. And they're just not able to listen to anybody else because they feel so unlistened to, they haven't got the space to be able to listen to anyone else. Mm-hmm. My now, friend distilled that so well, as she, as she said, like conflict seems to be what happens when someone wants to be heard so much that they stop listening to the other person. Yeah. And, and that dynamic is really powerful. And, um, you know, it's interesting. And when I think I observe that when I see violence or people really taking control of something or really trying to do something, they're trying to say something and they've tried other ways of communicating it and didn't work or 
you know, they don't think that there's other ways of, of speaking up about whatever the issue is or get that attention they need. And so, um, you just since, since we talked about January 6th, and um, it's interesting to think about what would it be like to have responded to, to some of that and say, okay, so wow, it sounds like you're really worried that you're not being represented right now. Tell us about what you're worried about, right? Like, um, and it's interesting because one of the things with this whole OmniWin project, I'm noticing that there's kind of, I'm thinking about it as like there's kind of four corners that kind of need to get touched on. So one is the skills that we were talking about, right? Like the skills to be able to have the conversation with the different perspectives, um, have them doing that. We also talked about like different kinds of systems, like how can we get certitian representative groups, you know, build that into our democracy. And then we're talking about these like cultural, you know, high level cultural, you know, approaches. And then but there's, there's something about the personal individual growth that's important in all of this. And there's something about having the capacity to say, oh, wow, that person's having a hard time. Let me move into that. Let me listen to them and to actually notice that it's time to listen as opposed to try to make your point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of personal fortitude and, and, um, but also commitment, I suppose, to that way of thinking. Thank you so much. And, and thank you. Yeah. Is there any last word you want to drop in here before we go? Uh, yeah, just a thought um, uh, that you were talking about. Um, when we talk about the disorganization, um, it's important to keep in mind that the transition from any lower form of organization to some higher form of organization requires us to disorganize the lower form of organization in order to make room for the higher one. And that's uh, that disorganization is called conflict. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. My pleasure. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. Today's episode is with Kenneth Cloak. I am so grateful to Ken for being an inspiration for this project and for reminding me and all of us about the inherent dance that we will always have to be having between conflict, democracy, when we live in a world of diversity. If you want more information about Ken or any of the things we discussed today, come check out the episode notes or you can come to omni-win.com in order to find all the information that we talked about today. If you enjoyed this, please share with someone and please subscribe to this podcast. You don't want to miss any future episodes. And so now, as you go on into your day and you start co-creating our future, I invite you to remember that we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the Omni Win Project podcast. Have a great day.